Welcome back in to Don't Retire, Semi-Retire. I am John Jagay, joined again by Zurich Oz. Zurich, always good to be with you. You too. Thanks again for having me back. So in our last session, we talked about doing the math as we approach uh, these final decisions here. Today, we're talking about gap year prep. But first, let's do a quick refresher on where we left off. Okay, as you remember from the last time we said about talking about doing the math, several specific steps. Number one, you've made your final choice about what you want to do. You've done the basic math as to the expenses and what you think it's going to be. You've compared it to your current lifestyle as well as the chosen life you want to do. Uh, number four, you decided you still wanted to continue. Uh, then you did the advanced math, the calculus. You talked to a financial advisor, your own financial advisor. You looked out for someone like our firm and say, you know, can I actually support this spend rate over a short period of time, a long period of time, whatever? Is it reasonable? Uh, you checked it twice and now you're ready for the gap year. So now this is the prep part. Mm-hmm. Some people make the mistake of wanting to do the thing before they plan it out. And this is a critical step. You're really going to try to do this for a year. So it's important that you take the time to do the final steps in the planning. I know in our previous episodes, Zurich, we've made the long-term dating or marriage or relationship comparison. Where are we along uh, that parallel track here at this point? Right. If you follow the dating analogy, again, this is for the long-term commitment. It's not about the date, right? And neither is semi-retirement or retirement. It's not this one-time definable thing that everyone seems to talk about in the financial media. It's a process, a journey, whatever cornball analogy you want. But it really is. It's a process. I mean, it's it's one thing to say, I'm going to retire. And then you go to Paris or wherever your place is. And it's not about the first day or the second day or the third day. It's about the 13th day. Yeah. You wake up and you think, oh my God, am I really in Paris? <laughs> what the hell am I doing here? Right. And unless you have a consistent plan to get you past day 13, day 14, day 15, day 16, day 80, that's where people fail out, which is a scary place to be. Right. And I guess to compare it against the marriage, there's a reason that people have engagements that are a year or two years, right? They want to make sure that they understand that this is the correct part of the relationship. Yeah, I know for my wife and I, it was trial by fire because we were long distance. We moved in right. together. We lived together <laughs> nine months. I popped the question. We were engaged nine months. Next thing you know, I had a ring on my finger. So, you know. Yeah. Put a ring on it, right? Exactly. Right? You're saying that song, right? Yeah. <laughs> You're efficient, right? But you knew what you wanted. You yes. made the decision. You went through the stages and you figured this was the right choice. Well, hang on. Let me correct you there. She knew what she wanted is really what it came down to. (laughs) Well, at least one of you knew what they wanted. Exactly. That was was easy, right? So for the money side, you have to define it, figure out what you want. You vet it against your values. You plan to test it. You test a little, you test a lot. You have your final test, your final choice. You be sure you do the math. You check it twice. You look for failure points. And now we're in part nine, which is the gap year. You know, is it going to be a long-term, short-term, semi-retirement test? Is it going to be a sabbatical? And have you given yourself the option to extend it one or two or three or five years, right? One of the most common things that people endure at this phase is disbelief. Mm -hmm. They think, oh my God, I actually did it. I'm doing it. It's like Mm -hmm. the first time you ride a bicycle. Oh my God, I I rode it without falling and raunching myself or chipping a tooth. And that really (laughs) is the the amazing part about this part of the year, part of the process. It's, It's almost like all the work you've done up until this point creates a sense of wonder which then, of course, is followed by shock, awe, guilt, fear, grief, elation, freedom, and disbelief all over again. It's funny. We had made the comparison in a previous episode, Zurich, of that gap year. Most people know that as taking a year off in between high school and college and kind of figuring out what you want to do with your life. The same thing is similar at play here, where you're trying to figure out what you want to do with the rest of your life, the part where you're done working. Right. And I like that idea of giving yourself the option to extend it to two or three years to say, hey, you know, I think this is what I want, but I'm not quite sure yet. I need to gather a little bit more data. Right. 
at this point, one of the things, again, and I can't stress it enough, just remember you're doing well. If you're at this point yeah. and you're making these choices and you're trying to figure out what you want to be when you grow up you know, in the middle age realm, that's a wonderful place to be. Some people aren't here. And so the fact that you're here at all and when wondering about these things and having this sense of confusion or concern is a great place to be. It's fantastic. Yeah, you are in a position of power. Absolutely. You have taken that power to decide what you're going to do for the rest of your life and not a lot of folks you know, have that opportunity. So let's talk about the prep for the gap year. Essentially, you're trying to live the life you love, which is our tagline for a year, right? You create a strategy, a plan, you try to figure out your final choice, you know, does it pose unnecessary risks in a way to the rest of your life or does it give you the opportunity to continue success? I mean, you can't necessarily take a gap year and leave your wife at home or your husband at home. That doesn't really work. And maybe you could do it for two months or three months, but it can't jeopardize the rest of your life. And that's the trick. Think of the gap year prep as the net beneath the trapeze. You're trying to make the swing from one, I don't know, one bar to the next. And if you screw it up, you want a net. You don't want to do the netless variety where you hit the ground. Right. So flat. Right. That's the approach here. So you essentially have the best of both worlds. You find a way to leave your former life on pause or the things you loved of your former life on pause while you go try and do the more adventurous thing. We're at a point where we're seeing if this is actually sustainable. Like you said, you're not going to leave your spouse at home. You're not going to right. do something that's unrealistic for you to be doing in the long term. Right. But you've kind of started to figure this out, make your prep list and see what might work. And now you start to compare your current life to your final choice, right? Right, exactly. Right. And this is part of the true advantage of, you know, working with a firm, you know, not, not to pit myself too much here, but working with a firm that's done this several times with many, many, many people trying to make this transition. It's one thing to say, here's your money and you're retired and you're done. Have your income stream. Right. But it's the transition that's the booger here. It's very <laughs> difficult to go from working 60 hours a week to zero. Yeah. You know, most people really need that transitory time. And, and the answers to many of the questions in this process are maybe. Yes. Should I work 50 hours or 20 hours? Maybe. Should I work 10 hours or one hour? Maybe. Should I go to, I don't know, Alaska or the, the Seychelles? Maybe. I mean, it's kind of a time of trying to figure out, again, what do you want to be when you grow up? Almost like you're just out of college and you want to figure out how to spend the rest of your life or what your career choices are. So it's, it's a time to give yourself a little bit of compassion where you're not going to know all the answers. And uncomfortably, you're going to have to make the decision on what feels right. And that's a harder process to make than just do you have enough money? Then that goes into our next point, which is figuring out what parts of your current life you're going to keep active during that gap year, right? Right. And so in this case, you reflect on the comparison you made above. We talked about, you know, what aspects of your current life do you want to maintain active during your gap year? And those are common things like you want to have a car when you come back, maybe. You know, you want to have a house, your stuff, your insurance, your banking, your investments, your financial plan, probably the same spouse, right? <laughs> maybe not, right? But who knows, right? The family, the pets, the children, the location, the hobbies, like you want to be able to, if your gap year doesn't work the way you want, and maybe you get three months into your gap year, and you're like, this is not going to work, right? You want to have the ability to go back to what you had with the minimum amount of fuss without making your life tough. One example of that is I had a client once who, you know, her relationship ended after 20 years and she was happy and she didn't really know what she wanted to do next in her life. And so she put all of her stuff in the storage unit that she cared about. She sold everything else and she got in her car and she lived out of her car for, you know, two years it was a wild experience for her, except she always felt like she could just call up a moving company and have them ship her storage unit to wherever she was when she decided she wanted to end up there, Yeah, which is what she did eventually. But she could have gone back to her original home, unpacked all of her stuff and just started over, right? 
So that's the second part. Then, then of course, the next part of that is what aspects of your current life will be put on hold? You know, did you sell your house? Did you sell your car? Did you get rid of a ton of stuff? Did you not like your bank or your investments or your spouse or your pets? Or, like, but the bottom line is, what aspects of things do you want to be able to recreate and what don't you care about? Yeah. Or what don't you want going forward? In this area, one of the things I always try to caution people on is be more conservative. Mm. Don't be absolute. If you think it's possible that you want your house again and you can afford to leave it empty instead of renting it out, just leave it empty. Yeah. It's very difficult to rent a house that has the same feel when you get back into it. And so that's a good example. I mean, obviously, don't lend your car to your neighbor who gets involved in some bank theft. Like, you don't want that. I mean, the, the bottom line here is be careful with what you put on hold and how you do it and how you can recreate it, but be more conservative in what you get rid of. You can pretty much carry your former life for a year even if you keep paying all your same expenses. It's just a way to give yourself the opportunity to go back to it, okay? And then uh, number four, how do you put them on hold? This is the part, it's like, it's a nice idea for me to say, yeah, leave your house empty. Well, that's a hard thing. Like for example, if you leave your house empty, you can have problems with insurance because insurance carriers don't want to insure in an empty house because mm. no one's around to find out if the furnace died or the pipes exploded or something else, right? And so let's take the house as an example. One of the things you'd want to do if you have some technical ability is you'd set up things like Nest or um, some other you know, ring and these other devices that allow you to see inside your house. Just remote monitoring. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Can you see inside your house, you know, set up an alarm company service. Is the temperature the correct temperature, you know, set up pipe notifications or water notifications or whatever to make sure that still doesn't cover you. Typically you need to have a friend or a property manager come over and look at the property and, you can usually get away with it for a year. Mm, it's hard to get away with it for much more than that. And you have to be really sure that when you talk to your insurance carrier with your house, that they are aware of that. Because what you don't want is you're gone for six months, your house burns down, and they say, well, you weren't here for six months, so we're not going to cover oh, it. Oh. So, you know, and that's not uncommon. Same thing with your car. Like when we left initially, there's a type of policy that covers you if some kid comes by and vandalizes your car mm. or someone steals your car or the roof falls on your car or something, but it doesn't insure your, cost you for liability. So if your car insurance is, say, 3000 bucks a year and you cover it for just this comp because it's sitting someplace underneath your house, it might be 500 bucks a year. But you still need to have the coverage and you still need to notify them. You call your insurance carriers. You essentially tell people, look, I'm going to be gone for six months or a year. This is our process. What can I do? How do I change the insurance? You know, and I'm not trying to harp on that, but that's a way that people can have significant loss or significant exposure unnecessarily if they're gone. I mean, what you're saying here, Zurich, is the devil's in the details. All these little things. And you're right. talking about taking care of your house, your vehicle, your insurance, pets, whatever it is. Right. Also, your bank will be another one. But there's another um, aspect of this. And that's relationships with actual people too, right? Right. A lot of people will feel abandoned. You know, if you're gone for a year, some people won't want to be your friends anymore because right. they feel like you left them and it's infantile, but it is what it is. <laughs> you know, you left me. It's like, oh my God. So one of the ways that you get past that is you have regular meetings. You have a virtual engagement with them. You find ways to have social groups. You find ways to stay in contact and in social media. Those relationships, you actually have to maintain the effort. You call them up every couple of weeks. And then that's something that people forget how to do, right? So they figure they're having this great new life. I got a client now that's doing this. He's got this great new life. He never posts on social media unless he wants to talk about himself. He doesn't engage anybody and his relationships are suffering. 
People will put up with that usually for six months, but not for a year. It's funny you use the word infantile, and you're right. But at the same time, it's human nature. People feel abandoned, you know? Right. People always evaluate relationships on what you get out versus what you put in. Right. And if your friend disappears and isn't making any effort, even like an occasional text or like you said, a Facebook message, a Zoom call or whatever it is, right. that relationship is not going to last because you're not putting the effort in. That's a really good point. Right. And it's tough to do that. And you actually have to sit down and have the maturity with the friends that are close to you. I mean, sometimes the social media posts work for people that you're acquaintances, but for the people that are close to you, you just sit down and it's like, I'm doing this thing for this reason. And this is my rationale behind it. So I like to maintain a connection with you. Let's do it on this schedule. And, you know, just a little bit of orientation to social relationships goes in a tremendous direction. I'll even draw a comparison to COVID. Uh, The couple that we're best friends with that live 10 minutes down the road in the very beginning of COVID when nobody was doing anything or going anywhere, we Zoomed with them probably once a weekend just to maintain that relationship. So it's a really good point. Right. And you can apply that as well to the relationship we have with all of your professionals you deal with. You know, your landscaper, your, if you have these people, your cleaner, or even like your insurance company, your investment advisor, like your credit card companies, everybody needs to know that you're going to be doing this big thing. I mean, mm-hmm. one of the things that can happen is you decide you're going to go in Europe for a year and you don't tell your credit card company <laughs> or your insurance companies because you forget about it. And then you find yourself that all your credit cards are canceled yep. because they think that someone stole your wallet. I mean, like there are these different pieces that you often don't look for. Now it's more of a problem internationally than it is domestically, but it is something to be aware of. And that's, like you said, it is the devil in the details. You have to go through every single aspect of your daily life and consider, huh, who should know about this? Do I need health insurance in this different place? Do I need different coverage in this place? How is it different? And one of the best ways to do that is just figure out where you're going to be. Let's say that you're going to be, I don't know, if it was me, I'd be in the south of France. Let's say I'm going to be in the south of France at some you know villa that I rented. Am I going to bring my own stuff or not? Mm. How do I rent a car for a year? You know, And the easy way to do that is just put yourself in the place that you're at and look all around you and consider everything you did from dawn until dusk. So... Do I have my favorite coffee machine? No. Can I get my favorite coffee here? Yes or no, right? Can I get my favorite wine if you drink here? Can I get my medication here? I had these meds this morning. You know, can I get insurance here? What happens if I broke my leg? Can I see a dentist? Like, essentially, take yourself through a day or two of activities of daily living and figure out where your weak points are. That's one of the easiest ways I found to try to identify what you may have missed after you solve for the big things like how to protect my house, my car, my stuff, my relationships, my you know children or whatever. Heck, my wife and I are renting a place in South Carolina coming up in the spring for a week. I'm bringing my French press. I'm bringing my cold brewer. Like I can't be without my coffee and my coffee. Good <laughs> right. So imagine going to France or somewhere else right. for a year. Your point is certainly well taken. Right. And something you've talked about in previous episodes, and this is really so important to what we're talking about here with the gap year, Zurich, is writing it down and tracking everything and not just going on gut and memory because memories fade, but you've got to document everything, right? Yeah, because otherwise you don't learn anything. What happens is it's six months down the road and you remember someplace that you actually really hated at the time is being this lovely place because wherever you currently are is worse. (laughs) The past seems rosier. When you're in the place, one of the things that I consistently do is like, how much do I like this place? And really autocratically, non-compassionate, just like, do I like the town? Do I like the environment? Do I like the weather? Do I like the people? Do I like the food? Like whatever you're doing this for, right? Maybe pick your metrics like we talked about in previous episodes and come with what you like or not and just be binary about it. Because what will happen is you may be in a bad mood, but if you're there for seven days, you'll come up with an average score. 
and you'll like it or you won't like it. And then you will know when you come back after your gap year, maybe you go back to your regular life for a couple of years, and then you regroup before you come back to your next gap year, you'll know what the best points are. You'll know why you didn't like this location. You know, a good example for me is there's something about the light in the south of France. And what it is, is there's something called the Mistral, which is a very powerful wind that blows about six months of the year. It gets all the sand out of the air. And so even though there's a lot of deserty and sand because it's a warmer climate, the light is crystal clear. Mm. And I personally like that. And so eventually I start to learn what are the primary things that I like or don't like. But you can only recognize that if you keep solid data. Everybody has their stuff. Absolutely. So when you write it all down and you have your comparisons, you, you note the choices you made, like we talked about previously, and you note what you like, and you might not know that you like it. One of the things when I moved to St. Croix, being this close to the ocean every day is super calming. Mm -hmm. When I'm inland, I'm not calm. So that means I need to be close to a big body of water that I can see. And some people have that. That's a relatively common human thing, but not everybody. Some people like to be in the mountains. It's that sort of day-to-day data, what do I like, what don't I like thing that makes a huge difference about actually trying to figure out how to do this long-term. So you've written it all down. You've got the plan. What's next? The next part is you try to break it. You know, this is the typical Murphy's Law. What people like to do is they like to plan for the best case scenario. And it never worked ever, right? Not to be negative, but you have to have a backup plan. Well, I'm going to go to the movies. I'm going to go to the seven o'clock showing. Well, it's full. Okay. I'll go to this other movie at a 7.15 showing. Okay, that's full. I'm going to go to this other movie at the 7.30 showing. Just plan A, B, C, D, and E, right? So you've written down the plan. And then you try to think of all the areas that would break. You know, for example, in Europe right now, I was going to go to France. I was supposed to be in France right now. The Russia invaded the Ukraine. I'm sorry, they had a special military operation. Yeah, let's not even go there, yeah. I'm not going to France. The end, right? That's it. You know, COVID is an example of having something that breaks your plan. There's all sorts of things that could break the current plan. So identify the things that could thwart your whole thing. That's the first step, right? And those are often, you know, force majeure, you know, hurricane, pestilence, you know, COVID, war, those sorts of things. Any of the plagues, basically, yeah. <laughs> right, pick a plague, right? And then the second part is ask your advisor, you know, based on their experience, based on what you're trying to accomplish, what are the issues they've seen other people encounter? And this is the real benefit of having an advisor that's done something like this before. Mm -hmm. They can see what you can't see. What have their other clients tried? Who's tried to have this gap year? Who's tried to go on six months or a year or two year tour before? What have they experienced? Did they underestimate homesickness? Did they underestimate the cost of goods in some foreign country? Did they underestimate how difficult it would be to speak in a foreign language all the time? Look for them to talk to you about the issues that they've encountered and then ask them financially, is it possible? What's your likelihood of failure? What happens if the market turns down by 30%? Are you screwed? Mm. Doesn't matter. you know. And then how hard is it for you to fix it? Let's say that one of your worst case scenarios happens. How far does it set you back? Does it set you back five years or does it set you back five minutes based on the risk you're taking? Then the next part is uh, write a plan B, C, D, and E. When I moved to the Virgin Islands, for example, I have a tendency to, to write more than A, B, C, D, and E. It's usually F, G, H, A, L, O, P, right? <laughs> I get down through about the M's. But I was in the islands. I got literally all the way to plan Z. I went through 26 iterations of the plan. <sighs> and plan Z was, I quit. I'm done. Hmm. I, you know, I spent a year and a half trying to make this happen. It was impossible on a bunch of fronts. I couldn't make anything work. I couldn't sort it out. And I was just going to quit. And my wife said, let's just go try this other island, you know, St. Croix versus St. Thomas. And we landed and we fell in love with it. But I was at my last plan and then I was going to quit. And one of the things that people I don't think realize is plan A doesn't work. B, C, D, E, F, and G don't work. 
there has to be a certain core, you know, I need to have X happen for this to work. And I think this is a descending criteria of value, right? What's your fundamental value that you need? I need to be, it needs to be warm. I need to be happy. And there has to be financial basis for me to do this, right? Or whatever the thing is. And then you build yourself up. So when you have these plans, plan A, B, C, D, E, F, G, all the way through plan Z, are the things that you need in decreasing order of what you'll tolerate. You know? So the very bottom line needs to be what must you have to stay. Two really good takeaways from that point, Zurich, are one, you mentioned advisors. Your spouse could certainly be an advisor, and she was in that case where yeah. you weren't happy in St. Thomas. She said, hey, let's try St. Croix, and it worked out. And the idea that when you get down to A, B, C, D, E, F, G, and so forth, if you change the variables, I like this point a lot, you can backtrack. Like you said, you went back up to E. Right. Just because you've gone through them once and didn't work out, if right. you change a variable, you could take a step back and say, okay, this is different now. I can get back to this point here. I think that's a really important point. That's a good point you make. I mean, at a certain level, if you change the orientation, you have to start over again. But that's the part of doing this. Give yourself some option where you can change everything from, like you said, plan E or below and give yourself a whole new orientation. Then you can recover. Otherwise, you're, you're, you've lost way more than you need to. And then, of course, at the bottom line is the plan Z, which is chuck it. Okay. <laughs> you know, like just give up. You failed. It didn't work. And it's okay to have that happen. You know, I'm a kite surfer and there's an analogy where there's something called the chuck it line. Essentially, you know, your kite fell in the water. It fell behind a wave. It's going to go into a field where there's reef and boulders or rocks or something else. <laughs> and you can't recover. And it's going to kill you. So you have the kind of the O blank line and you just let it go. Yeah. Then it's just you in the ocean. And it's better you in the ocean versus you in the ocean tied up in your kite lines and drowning, right? So yeah. it has to be okay to fail. And I think this is a major point that people miss. You're trying something you've never tried before. You worked your butt off to figure out if you could make it. There's going to be a point at which you might have to just quit and give up because to continue could jeopardize the rest of your life. So you set a clear boundary. I'm not going to cross this line. It's like you live to fight another day. And I've seen a lot of people get to the point where they just try to hammer it through and their returns just start to dive. And it has to be okay to fail. And I think that's one of the hardest things for Americans. They don't want to fail. You know? <laughs> no, it's a stereotype, but, there, but there's truth in it. It's, you know, I don't want to fail. I'm, I'm, I'm better than this. But the idea behind failing is learning and then maybe living to fight another day. Right. I mean, at the, at the end of the day is you're not going to be right the first time ever, really. I mean, I wasn't right and I'm pretty good at this and I tried it dozens of times and, but eventually I stuck the landing. Also, the part that people forget is the sense of, uh, is it wonder? Is it je ne sais quoi? I mean, the idea of you couldn't make it work in this way that you thought it was going to work. And so then you got a wild hair and you just tried it some other way and it worked. Like this, this sense of innovation or this sense of, creativity because everything else failed. And unless you can allow yourself to be like, well, I told you this didn't work. I totally screwed the pooch here. I'm going to try this totally different thing. And sometimes it is the actual act of failing that is one step away from total success. I'm going to give you a sports analogy here, which is slightly off, but I think along the along your lines, I know you're a Minnesota guy and I'm a Boston guy originally. Okay. So when, not if, but when the Vikings win the Super Bowl, <laughs> it will be, I know you're already laughing. I know you're laughing, but hear me out. When the Vikings win the Super Bowl, it will be that much more glorious because of all the heartbreak, 98 no. and so on, that Vikings yeah. fans experience. Oh, yeah. And I speak right. from experience because when 
The Red Sox won in 2004. They had got beat by the Yankees the year before in seven games, and that made it that much sweeter. So there's a little bit of a comparison here where you're taking the failure and that is making the success that you're eventually going to get to that much sweeter. Right. It's the Hail Mary. I guess that's part of it. That's the part that I think people miss. They get so stuck in the ideas. I have to have an incremental gain. And really, it's the Hail Mary that saves the day half the time. It's the old proverb about nobody actually fails. You either succeed or you learn, which is a little hokey, but there's some truth to it. <laughs> right. You know, and, and based on this process of, you know, the Murphy's Law, I mean, I, I failed in France in 2018. I succeeded in, in you know, USVI in 19. I failed in 2021 and 22 in France. And hopefully I succeed in 23. But it's these different things that you have to continue to learn and, and be open to the failure. There's a lot of data, a lot of planning, a lot of ready to go. And then once you've got all this planned out and you've got your contingencies and you get everything mapped out, that's when you press the launch button and you go. Right. And Zurich, if somebody wants to talk to you about this whole process, it's been fascinating learning about it over these last several episodes with you. How does someone best find you? Well, I've got a unique name. It's uh, Zurich, like the city in Switzerland, and Oz, like the beginning of awesome. So just type in Zurich Oz into any web browser, which is Z-U-R-I-C-H-A-W-E-S, and you'll find me immediately. The website is, you know, ZurichOz.com. The phone number is 763-577-1900. And you can reach me out at Zurich at ZurichOz.com. I mean, call me with questions, send me emails. I love to talk to people. That's why I'm doing this. Zurich, before I let you go, give me a little teaser as to what's next. The next phase is the gap year launch. You're ready to go. At this point, you've done all the planning, you've done all the figuring, and now we're going to talk about what it means to land, be in your place, be in your location, living the life you love. Not what happens on day one, but what happens on day six. And day 60 and day 600 (laughs) if you go to a second year. Right, right. I mean, it it is, to be honest, it's not the first three weeks. It's the fifth week, the eighth week, the tenth week. Like how to imbue yourself in this new system. After the honeymoon is over for sure. Right, exactly. Always a pleasure, Zurich. We'll talk again soon. All right, thanks. Thanks. 